Well, can I invite you to turn with me to the passage that Alex read a moment or two ago, uh, Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to be studying now the, the penultimate passage or section of our study in the book of Revelation. So, Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 9 and following. This is God's Word, so before we come to it together, let us um, come to Him in prayer and ask Him for His help uh, to understand it. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is not only a revelation of You, but that it shows us Your Gospel. And we thank You that each time we open it and read it, we learn something new about Your Gospel. Almighty God, we must declare this evening that we're not worthy of your gospel. We're not worthy of this gift that, that you have so freely given us. And even tonight, as we read about the new creation, the, the, the final act of your gospel, we recognize we're not worthy. We're not worthy to receive it. But we thank you that you want us to know about it. You want us to have it. And we thank you this evening that as we study this passage together, you want to encourage us. You want to give us hope of the world that is to come. So we pray that you would bless us. Bless us in accordance with your words. Amen. In February of 1964, Sam Cooke released an album uh, with a song in it that became... Uh, one of the anthems of the civil rights movement. I don't know if you're a fan of Sam Cooke, but I'm sure you'll know this song. This is the last verse of the song. And it, he says, he says, there have been times that I thought I couldn't last for long. But now I think I'm able to carry on. It's been a long, a long time coming but I know a change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will, he says. You can see there that the, the song is called A Change is Going to Come. And even if you don't know the song, if you've never even heard of it before, you can see, I hope, from this last verse, that it's not just a song about change, but about the hope that the possibility of change brings. And one of the reasons that this song is so popular and has stood the test of time, and it's not just because it, 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 it spoke into the civil rights movement, that very contentious period of time, but because the prospect of change brings us all hope. One of the sad realities of this world, I'm sure you agree, is that no one is content no one's content. Even if you're happy, you recognize that your happiness is short-term. There's no contentment. And we long for change. Unfortunately, most of you know change never really happens. Certainly not as we expect, and certainly not in the way that our hope desires. But yet change is what we strive for, and change is what we put our hope in. Well, tonight, tonight we're turning to a passage 
but it's all about change. And it's a passage that tells us that we no longer need to put our hope in this world or in its empty promises, but our hope should be in a change that is going to come, a real change, a change that will come with a new creation. And as we look at this passage and look at these changes, the changes that are going to come with this new creation, we're going to see that it is worthy of our hope. This is the conclusion of this book of Revelation, and it's no coincidence that it's the conclusion of the Bible. It's the thing that we are to look forward to, the last great promise of the gospel. It is our one true hope. We're going to try and navigate this passage that's quite a long passage and is filled with imagery and promise, and it's lots of great things. And we're going to try and navigate it by looking at these three points. These are sort of three changes or or areas of change I think this passage highlights. You'll see that we're going to look at the change that is going to come for the people of God, the change that is going to come for the place of God, and the change that is going to come for the paradise of God. So let's work through these three points together and see, see, the good news in this passage. So let's have a look first and foremost at our first point, the people of God. And this is the first change that is going to come. And it's going to come for those of you who are members of God's people, for those of you who are in Christ. That is what this passage is written to. This is where we're at. If you were here last week, you will know that it finished with the judgment day, the return of Christ and the subsequent judgment. And John here in his book turns to those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he says, this is your destiny. This is the change that is going to happen for you. And so in this point, we're going to see that the change that's going to come for God's people is that they're all going to dwell together forever. And we see this um, by looking at this passage and seeing that it is a passage that is first and foremost about a city. Look with me, if you will, at at verse 10 and and see what's described there. You'll see it quite clearly. John is uh, being shown something by an angel and he's carried away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and he has showed the holy, holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. At this point, I want to say, straight away that although this uh, is about a city, that this is a vision, it's not a literal description of a city, it's a a description of the new creation. The reason I I say that is because we can easily read this and think it's a description of what Jerusalem and Israel is going to become, or that Christians sometimes think themselves, oh, we're going to spend eternity in a physical city. That may may or may not be true, I'm not sure. What I want us to see is that this is a vision And it's a vision or an image of the community of God's people. And that's what this city represents. And I think we see that whenever we look at the detail of the passage. For instance, see how the angel describes this vision in verse 9. You see what he says to John? He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so this angel is saying to John, the apostle, he says, here, I want to show you a vision of God's people. That's what the bride, the wife of the lamb is. We're familiar with that language from Revelation. And yet the next thing, the next thing John sees in verse 10 is that this bride, this wife, is indeed a city. 
I don't know about you, but when I was in school, I was told not to mix your metaphors. So this is quite confusing. It seems quite odd that this is what the Bible is doing. But there's a purpose to it. And the purpose is that the angel, or we, John sees God's people as a city because cities represent the place where people dwell. And that's the point of this vision, or indeed the first point of this vision. It's to show you this evening that if you are a member of God's people, if you're a Christian, that your eternal destiny is not life on your own. It's not life necessarily with your immediate family, but life in community. Community with all of God's people. That's why, I don't know if you picked up on this, but that's why there's so many twelves in the following verses. Do you know what I mean? Have a look down and see with me the description of the city from verse 12. Let me read them again, shall we? And, and, and you'll see what I mean. This is what the, how John describes the city. He says, It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three in the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then if you skip to verse 19, you'll see it describes the foundations. And it says the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. I'm not going to read them like Alex does, but you can see there, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, all the way to twelfth. And then verse 21, the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each need of a single pearl. I think it's eight times the number twelve is mentioned here. And I'm sure by now, if you've been with us in our series on Revelation, you'll know that this is not a, a literal number. It's not a literal description of this city. Rather, twelve is a symbol that represents all of God's people. And it is all of God's people. We can see that from verse 26. It says that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. All of God's people gathered from the east, the north, the south, and the west. That's why those gates are there. And we're all being brought in, or we will all be brought in to this one community. And you see, this is the first change. This is the first change that is going to happen in the new creation. God's people are going to live together in one community. And that is worthy of our hope. You might not, don't know what you think about that, but let me try and tease this out for you a little bit. Let's try and think about where people are at in this world in terms of community. Because I know, for instance, some of you are estranged from your families. You're estranged from your families because of your faith. Some of you have never married because of your faith. And you crave community. And although this church endeavors to be the family you need, it can only go so far. Some of us are on the periphery of society, aren't we? Some of us struggle to make friends. Some of us don't fit in at work. Some of us don't even fit in in here. I'd say almost every single one of us has lost a loved one. Some of us have even lost children. 
Some of us want our church to be a better community, and we get frustrated when other people don't take it as seriously as we do. Some of us have fallen out with Christians. Some of us have seen our Christian friendships deteriorate, whether with time or distance or whatever else. And we long for them to be restored. You see, this, all these reasons, and so many more, is why this picture of this city is worthy of our hope. Because this vision promises us that a change is coming. And it is coming in the form of a new creation where no one is going to be deserted, where no Christian is going to be marginalized, where no one is going to die, where no one is going to get frustrated, where no one is going to get hurt. In the new creation, we are going to be reunited with our Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to be reunited with those who we have loved, who loved the Lord and are no longer with us. We're going to be reunited with those covenant children who died before they were born. In the new creation, we're going to commune with believers from every corner of the world and every part of history. And we're going to have all eternity to enjoy one another, to bless one another, and to be blessed by one another. A change is going to come. Christ is going to return. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And those who are found in Him are going to go to a new creation. And they're going to dwell with one another together forever. And it's going to be great. And this is worthy of our hope. That's the first change that is going to come, and it's going to come for those who belong to Christ, who trust in Jesus, the people of God. But the second change that is going to come is concerns the dwelling place of God. And you'll see there, in this point, we're going to see that the change that is coming is that in the new creation, God is going to dwell with his people. And we see this by returning to this vision of the city, which, as we're going to see, is not only a a, a vision or a picture or a symbol of where God's people dwell, but a symbol of where God dwells too. So as before, let's have a look at verse 10 and see what this vision tells us. You see it there, verse 10? You see what we're told? It tells us that John... Uh, stands on a high mountain and sees a holy city called Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now keep your eyes on this because the details of this verse are important because it speaks of God's presence. That's what all these sort of words here mean. It talks about a holy city. Well, that is a, a city where God dwells. It talks about heaven, doesn't it? And heaven is where God dwells. It talks about a mountain being up on a mountain. And the mountains are where God's dwells. And of course, it speaks of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is where God in his temple dwells. And so as much as this city is a picture of where people dwell, it is also a picture of where God dwells too. And as in our first point where we had the number 12 reinforce this for us, so we're going to see in this point 
temple imagery or the uh, um, image or, or pictures or um, pictures from the temple reinforce this point too. And let's see that. It really begins in verse 15. And if you have a look down at verse 15, you'll see that it gives us the measurements of the city walls. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it says in verse 16, it says, the city was laid out as, as a square as long as it was wide. So actually what's telling us there is that the city is the shape of a cube. And if you know your temple, well, you know that the Holy of Holies was the shape of a cube, the very place where God was, where God dwelt, where God could be found in the temple, is the same shape as this. And this continues, actually, in verses 18 to 21. It gives us this list of precious stones. And again, if you're familiar with the temple, you will know that these stones, these stones are particular. They're, they're, they're especially given to us because they correspond to the precious stones and metals that were used to adorn the temple of Israel. Actually, they're actually based on the stones and jewels that you find in Eden. And Eden is the original temple. Eden is where God and Adam dwelt together. And so it's clear from this vision, which is just rammed full of imagery, that this city descending from heaven is not just any ordinary city, but it is a temple city. And not only does it represent the place where God dwells, but it represents the place where God meets his people. Isn't that what a temple was for? You might know this from your Old Testament theology, but the temple was, it enabled a sinful people to commune with a holy God. In the Old Covenant, you'll know that the, 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 the tabernacle or the temple was in the center of God's people. They couldn't go in. They weren't able to go in, save for one day, where the high priest was able to go in on the Day of Atonement. Of course, we live in the New Covenant, don't we? And it's through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we, in this moment right now, are able to stand in the presence of God. But yet, yet despite this amazing act of grace of Jesus Christ, the truth is we're still far from God. The truth is we still don't know God as we should know him or like to know him. And again, we know this, don't we? I mean, ask yourself, who here would love to know God better? Who here struggles with feeling far from God? Who here has ever craved knowing God's presence better or more fuller or more constantly? Don't raise your hand at this one, but who here is tired of church? Who here is tired with the, the effort and the rhythm? Who here has ever felt discouraged by their lack of Christian growth? Who here is fed up fighting sin? Who here is weighed down by the pressures of this world? Who here is scared of the devil and of his acts? Well, a change is coming. Because in the new creation, as verse 22 says, have a look at verse 22. In the new creation, there is no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And you'll see there, 
God's people, the nations will walk by the light of the Lord. They will go into it. They will bring their splendor and glory into it. Verse 24, and we will behold the light and the glory of God. And this is worthy of our hope, isn't it? In the new creation, our desire for God's presence will be fulfilled. In the new creation, there will be no barriers. There will be no distances. There will be no rituals. There will be no priests. There will be no programs. We'll be there with God forever. Do you know in the new creation, no one will struggle to find God In the new creation, no one will be frustrated at the lack of his presence in their lives. Do you know in the new creation, you'll never find yourself on your knees in the middle of the night pleading out for him to come to you and to help you? Do you know you will never feel guilty for feeling far away from him? Because you will dwell in his midst. You will be in the holy of holies forever. And you will see him for who he is. And you will live by the light of his glory. Unfettered access, that's what I've written here. Unfettered access to God. An eternal and full submersion in his presence. We can't comprehend it. We don't understand exactly what that looks like. We're fallen. But we know that it is worthy of our hope. Let's have a look at our very, our last final change, the paradise of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this point, we're going to see that, we're going to see the last change, and that is that the new creation is the true creation. And we see this really by saying that the new creation is a paradise city. So it is a city, or it is an image of a city because that's where people dwell. It is a temple city, or an image of a temple, that's because God will dwell but it's also an image of a paradise city because that is where all will be well. And we see this really from verse 22. And if you have a look down there at those verses, you see that the angel then shows John this. He sort of moves on. He shows him this river of water of life and how it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And then you'll see it, it tells us that on each side of the river st- stands a tree of life bearing 12 groups of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And it says, in the leaves of the trees are the healing of the nations. This is an image of inside the city, isn't it? And it sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? It sounds wonderful. But remember, this is not a literal description of what eternity will be like. It's a vision. And it's filled with particular imagery that seeks to point us to somewhere else in Scripture so that we know or have a sense of what it might be like. And the point of this vision is that the new creation will be a paradise. And so whenever we look at this and read about a paradise, we've got to ask ourselves, where else in the Bible do we read about a paradise? Well, where else? The Garden of Eden, of course. Doesn't it look like the Garden of Eden? What has it got? Well, it has rivers. The Garden of Eden has rivers. It has trees, a tree of life. That's actually there in the Garden of Eden. There's life. There's blessing. There's fruit. There's abundance. 
But as we look again at this paradise city, we see it as much, much better than the Garden of Eden. Let's have a look at verses 3 to 5, and let's read them together and see how that's much better. Let's see, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What does this mean? What does this say? Well, it says in the paradise city there'll be no tree of knowledge. Remember what Adam took and fell? Because they will see God. Isn't that what it says? They will see his face, verse 4. And and Eden, remember, there was a serpent there to tempt Adam, to cause him to fall. Well, isn't that what it says? There's no more night, there's no more evil. Isn't that what that means? There's going to be no serpents in this new paradise city to tempt us to disobey God. What about the curse? The curse that overhangs us now and the curse that was there waiting to be bit on Adam when he fell. Well, it's clear, isn't it? Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse and there'll be no threat of expulsion. Isn't that what it says? End of verse 5, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, this is true paradise because the new creation is the true creation. This world that will come, this new creation, this world renewed with the return of Christ. It will be a return back to what this world was always originally intended to be, except it will be much, much better. There'll be no evil. Satan has been dealt with. He will not be there. He will not tempt us. There'll be no chance of us failing as our father, Adam, did. Instead, we are going to dwell with our father forever. It's a paradise city. And as before, this is where our hope ought to lie. As the world decays around us, as our work frustrates us and disappoints us, as the powers of this world let us down. God's people everywhere, those who trust in Jesus as their own personal Savior and Lord, know that they are destined for a new creation, a creation that will bring them perpetual joy and eternal blessing. That's, by the way, what these fruits in verse, or these trees in verse 2 is talking about yielding its fruit every month, 12 crops of fruit a year. Perpetual blessing. 12 is, is almost sort of a full number. It's like seven. It's kind of like abundance, abundant. Blessing, joy, perpetually. And this is our true hope. And we're at this point that There's a sort of temptation within me and maybe even in yourself to ask, well, what does this actually look like? Let's put a wee bit of meat on the bone here. But this is really as much as I can tell you about the new creation. It's actually as much as the Bible tells us. It's our desire, isn't it, to know what we're going to do, what it's going to look like. 
And we can go elsewhere in Scripture, and we can talk about that. If we find it helpful, I'll happily chat to you after the service. But this is paradise. Seeing his face. Living in the light of the Lamb. Because you see, that is our hope. That is what the Bible wants us to trust in. That is what the Bible wants us to have drive us forward in our faith. Not any of these other things that we might think it's about. Eternity with God. Eternity with the one who knows what we need. Eternity with the one who can bless. And eternity with the only one who can fulfill our hope. Change is coming. This world, God is going to return. And isn't that what we read in verse 10? Heaven is coming down. God is coming down to dwell with his people. Those who are wicked and who disobey God will be sent off to face the eternal condemnation of God. And Jesus will remake this world. And it will be a much, much better Eden. It will be a true creation. We will dwell with one another. And we will dwell with God forever. Let me conclude. This is how I started, isn't it? We talked about change coming. There's always change coming. The world is always changing. The world is always trying to do things better. No one is content. I'd love to, if any of you in here is truly content this evening, I'd love to meet you. We're not content. We know things. We know things are going against us. But the world, its promises are empty. And our hope is wasted on them. Well, if we, if you're a Christian tonight, or if you're wanting to be a Christian, if you're wanting to be a part of this kingdom, then you need to look for real hope. And I think, actually, if you read these words of Sam Cooke's, I think, and if you sort of translate them as we have, you know, into the sort of scripture worlds, I think he's right. Because what does he say? He says, I know a change is going to come. We know a change is going to come. We know Jesus is returning. We know he's going to judge the living and the dead. And we know he's going to take those who are written in his book of life. We know he's going to bestow upon them his glory. We know that they are going to dwell in community with one another forever. That they are going to dwell with God forever. They are going to see him face to face and know him fully. And they're going to live in paradise. A change is coming. This is our true hope. Let me pray for us. And then let us come to God in song and sing to him praise for his word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, this great truth, this great picture of what is to come. We recognize that there's so much more we would love to know. We recognize that it's because we are sinful and because you are not enough for us. But we pray that you would give us a heart that longs for this day, a heart that longs to live in your presence forever. And we thank you that is the the culmination of your gospel, though that is the climax of your gospel. And we pray that as we meditate upon it, as we think upon it, that it would give us true hope, 
a hope that will keep us going in our faith or a hope that will make us go down to our knees and ask you for forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hope. And we thank you that it is coming and that it is real. Amen.